Well, good morning, everybody. Doing all right? Doing well? Okay. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. I'm glad that you're here. I'm excited to continue our journey in the gospel of Matthew together. And today we're going to hear a collection of Jesus' teachings to the disciples on how they are to live together in the fellowship of the faith. So the title of our message this morning is Life Together. Life Together. Now, there's a, a really important theologian, um, pastor in the early 20th century. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may have heard that name before. He was a German uh, theologian, German pastor, and he uh, was educated in Germany, educated in America, and uh, was very a prolific writer. He wrote a lot of things, uh, but he was a dissenter against uh, the, the rise of Nazism in the Third Reich. And so uh, you may know the story that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, was killed by the Nazis uh, very, very soon before the Allies came and uh, basically won the war. I mean, if it wasn't just for a couple of weeks, Bonhoeffer probably would have been spared. Uh, but one of the things that Bonhoeffer wrote, and he's, he's really uh, famous for uh, books like The Cost of Discipleship, um, and uh, he has a book on ethics that's really uh, important. We wouldn't necessarily agree with all of it, but it's a, it's a very important work. He has commentaries and things like that. But, but one of his books, it's a little book, and it's powerful, and it's called Life Together. So I'm, I'm riffing my sermon title off of his book, and that book is all about how it how should believers, how should Christians live together? I mean, what does it look like to be a, a communion of saints, a fellowship of believers? And he has some harsh words for the church 80 years ago, um, and even farther back, much less the church of today. And so uh, I want to kind of jump into the, the gospel of Matthew in chapter 18 with that kind of spirit in mind of, we want to be able to learn. We want to be teachable on how it is that we ought to live together as believers. Now, you guys are students. You're teenagers. You interact some with your peers, but you don't. You know, you obviously don't live with them. But you you do uh, interact with them throughout your life, throughout the week, throughout your days. And so, uh, what are those interactions supposed to look like? What are the the times together? What what kind of things should be present in? In those times. And so uh, we have a whole chapter to cover. It's a lot of content. So we're not going to be able to dive down and drill in really, really deeply, but we're going to kind of hover quickly to give you, because I want to give you guys time to discuss this. Um, so my hope and prayer is that you would be uh, teachable, as, as, as hopefully I am as well, and as we think about what God has for us in His Word about how we might live together as faithful believers. So let me read to you. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 18. We're going to go through go through verse 14, all right? Let's pray. I mean, let's read, and then we'll pray. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. 
And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. All right, let's pray and then we'll dive in. God in heaven, we are grateful to gather together as your people this morning to open your word, to read your word, and to study and be transformed by your spirit. We pray that you would help us to have eyes to see, illuminate the eyes of our hearts so that we might rightly behold the truth of your word and transform us by the renewing of our minds as we think through what it means to be uh, believers in community. Uh, how do we interact with one another? How do we live alongside one another? How do we encourage one another and stir up one another to love and to good works? How do we outdo one another in showing honor? Lord, your word is good and it is helpful for us and it leads to life. And so we pray that today there would be no exception. You would do that for us by your grace and for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So this morning we're going to see kind of three big ideas of how believers ought to be uh, living together. And so if you're writing notes, the first one is going to be this. Believers live in humility and compassion. Believers live in humility and compassion. So when we just read verses 1 through 14, there's a lot of kind of rapid fire stories going on, but it's all connected with the idea of the little ones or the children, right? Jesus is telling the disciples what it means to be great in the kingdom. They're asking this question, and they're thinking in the categories of the kingdoms of the earth, right? They're asking, Jesus, who's the greatest in heaven? And they're thinking about rank and position. They're thinking about these things as prizes they ought to long for. But Jesus' kingdom, as we know, is not of this world. So when they ask him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus takes a child and brings him over and says, look here. I mean, it's this very subversive, very interesting way to answer the question. Jesus is saying that believers must become like children to enter the kingdom. Now, what does that mean? That we all need to work together to find a time machine so that we can go back to our childhood days and then go into the kingdom? No, that's not, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we actually physically become kingdom, uh, become a, children, a child, uh, any more that John chapter 3, when Nicodemus hears that he must be born again, that he has to be literally physically born again. Now, what does Jesus mean? It means humbling yourself like a child before his parents. So I have a 15-month-old now. Uh, Abe is, is growing, and uh, he is, he's not stopping, and as much as I wish it would stop, um, he is just continuing to flourish, continuing to grow, continuing to learn. But one of the things I've noticed is, the boy has zero shame, right? Like no matter what's going on, if he has a problem, he's going to yell for help, right? So like the other day, he got really frustrated and started yelling for me because he couldn't get his toy train out of the, out of the shelf 
because he was holding it really weird. And he was the reason that he couldn't get it out. (laughs) And he was just really upset about it. And so he's calling out for help, right? He has no shame. He has great humility. He is constantly uh, growing in his awareness that he is dependent on his mom and his dad for life. Right? He, he, in, in one instinctual sense, he knows that because uh, he doesn't pour his bottle. He doesn't heat up his food. He doesn't change his diaper. He doesn't, get, he doesn't put himself in the bed, right? Like everything the boy does, we do. He is dependent. So as he continues to learn, as he continues to grow, he continues to become more aware of his need and of his dependence on his parents. And Jesus, I think, is saying something very similar. Citizens in his kingdom are going to live constantly aware of their great need, of their dependence on God. And they welcome any and all who live that way too. So what does it mean to be a part of the citizenship of heaven, the kingdom of God, the family of God? You recognize your great need. You run to your father to meet those needs. And you recognize your siblings who live the same way. But if they cause little ones to sin, that is, if people who notice young believers who are growing in their awareness of their need for God cause others to sin or to stumble, Jesus talks about their judgment being severe, right? It would be better, Jesus says, if someone took a great millstone and wraps it around their neck and throws them into the sea to drown. Like their judgment is better than that. I mean, that that is better than the judgment. So then Jesus fires off a woe or a warning of judgment in verse 7 for those who tempt others to sin. In this intense little passage in verses 7 through 9, Jesus puts the question before us, right? Cutting off your hand, tearing out your eye. The question is this, what are you willing to do to avoid sin? What are you willing to do for holiness? What are you willing to do for life? The right answer in reading that is, is not to harm yourself, right? We've already looked at Jesus is using the example of a child to communicate a, a eternal reality. He's not saying physically become a child. And in the same way, the judgment being worse than somebody having a millstone tied around their neck and jumping off into the sea to drown, that doesn't mean that we should do that. And in the same way, when Jesus is saying, hey, if your hand is causing you to sin, cut your hand off and throw it away. He's not literally saying like, here's the saw. Right? Like, that's not... Like, let's just think about this. If we're created in God's image, if we're the the crown jewel of God's creation, I don't think the right answer from Jesus to your problem would be, hey, could you just like harm yourself? And then I think it'll be better. Like that doesn't make any sense, right? So what is Jesus saying? He's not telling you to harm yourself as some have tried to interpret this passage. Jesus is using exaggeration to make a point. The point is, is that we must be putting our sin to death. And putting sin to death is painful. Putting sin to death is hard. So here's a few examples of maybe some radical willingness to forsake sin. Maybe you love video games. I know I did when I was a kid. I still do. Nothing wrong necessarily with that. There's nothing wrong enjoying a good video game, playing with your friends, or maybe playing like a story game by yourself. But you begin to notice that your mood is affected by how well you're doing in those games. 
You begin to structure your life around it. You're going to get your homework done or do all of these things at this time of day so that at night you have all this time dedicated to playing games. You dedicate great deals of time to studying that game, reading about it, practicing it, playing it with you, with just yourself or your friends. And in doing that, you decide to neglect regular patterns of Christian living for the sake of the thing that you like. So I don't really need to read my Bible. I don't really need to study that passage for equipping groups. I don't really need to spend time praying today because I need to get this done in the game. I don't really need to spend time encouraging other believers because we're going to make sure that we're being, uh, we're, we're going to do our best tonight when we get together to play this game together. I, I don't really need to go to this church event. I don't really need to do this thing because, because I, I really have this plan to, to spend a lot of time getting good at this part of the game. At some point, you will have to ask whether video games, as they are in your life, are sinfully drawing you away from the things of God and towards the pleasures and desires of your flesh. Would you be willing to cut it off? Would you be willing to forsake it? To say, this is becoming a Lord over me. It's, 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 it's changing the way I schedule my life. It's changing the way I think about things. It's, it's what my mind defaults to when I have nothing else to do. Would you consider making hobbies your hobbies? and making priorities priorities. Or maybe a more intense example. Let's say you struggle with lust, and you realize that the height of your temptation is when you're alone with your phone. Nobody's looking around. Nobody knows what you're up to. And you realize, you know, you don't need a phone. But you don't. You don't need private access to social media or the internet. It would be inconvenient for you, but you don't need it. So would you be willing to give up your phone for the sake of holiness? Would you be willing to go to a parent and say, I need you to, I need you to hold on to this for a while? What moves are you willing to make to continue to grow in your awareness of your need for God and your humble obedience to his word? Maybe that's not you, right? Maybe, maybe you don't have those kinds of temptations and struggles. But your response to the fact that many of us do is, is not to boast or to be arrogant, nor to look down on those who do. So not only do we live in humility, but we live in compassion. And this is, this is I think, what Jesus is getting at in this section. Let's say you have a kid in your small group this week who shows up without their phone. Let's say you go to equipping groups and you're meeting with your group and, and one of the girls in your group hands uh, or says, you know, hey, pull out your Bibles and she has a print Bible and she usually always uses her phone. And somebody says, hey, did you forget your phone? Well, no, I, I gave it to my parents. And she confesses to your group why she gave it. She gave it up for time to practice holiness, to retrain her mind and heart and to walk in faithfulness to Jesus. And she's asking you as the group to pray for her, to encourage her that the Lord might empower her to faithful obedience even when it gets hard because she knows it will. How should you respond to that? It's easy for us to respond to that and say, man, I'm so glad I don't have that problem. And I think that's why Jesus gives the parable of the lost sheep here. The sheep in this story, contrary to the version of the story that Jesus tells in the, in the gospel of Luke, 
that the lost sheep in Matthew 18 is a believer. Like look again at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Right? We know who the little one is. This is a, a believer who's walking in humility, but has yet gone astray from the shepherd. A believer growing in their faith, but in this case, wandering away into sin. Their repentance, though, is the sign that the good shepherd has sought them out and found them and brought them back into the fold. And so our response to that reality that's going to take place in our lives regularly should be the same response of the shepherd. And what was the response of the shepherd in the parable? It was joy. He rejoiced that he had found this one wayward sheep more so than the other 99 who had stayed. So we rejoice with our sister who has chosen by God's grace to forsake her sin. We commit to walk alongside them as sheep in a flock do. To protect one another, to guide one another, and help one another follow the shepherd. In short, we live with our brothers and sisters with compassion. We recognize that all of us have hurts, all of us have struggles, all of us have temptations, and it seems fitting that God has put all of us together with our varied problems as well as our varied strengths so that we might encourage one another to continue to walk in holiness together. And when one of us falls short and recognizes they're falling short and repents, our our stance isn't, again, She still has that problem. He still has that problem. He's still worried about that thing. He's still falling short in that thing. No, it's to rejoice, to come alongside them, to encourage them, to show compassion to them, to to be the one to volunteer and say, hey, how can I encourage you this week as you fight for holiness? How can I encourage you this week as you, like everyone else around the table, seeks to walk in humility as a believer? So we walk Together, we live together in humility and in compassion. Let's keep going. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Well, there's a lot we could talk about in this little passage, but the two things we want to highlight is our second point. Believers live in holiness and reconciliation. That theme of holiness has already crept up in the first part of Matthew 18. But here, when we talk about this classic text for discipline in the life of the body of Christ, we recognize that that discipline exists because there's a default commitment to holiness. If we didn't care about holiness as the people of God, there'd be no need for discipline. If we didn't care about holiness, there would would be no real need for confronting someone in their lack of holiness. It would just be 
kind of the way of the world. We wouldn't really worry about it. And unfortunately, in many churches, that's the case. That there's no practice of church discipline, whether formal or informal, because there really is no great intentional commitment to holiness. So, so hopefully we see being in community as the fellowship of believers and being a part of a local church is not, it's not like a mall. Okay. It's not a place that you go with certain people in order to consume things that your heart wants. Right. Like my mom, I just have these, these like distinct memories of like uh, my mom going with like girls, uh, like girls in our family when we go to the beach and they go shopping, right? It's like a, I'm sure there's probably instances of like in your family as well, right? And they enjoy the, the camaraderie. They enjoy the fellowship. They have a lot of fun. Like it's, but they're going on a mission, right? Like they got a list, they have things that they want and they're going to go get it. And the way that they do that is they go to a place that is built for consumption, right? It's built, you go to a mall. Why are you at the mall? Because I'm going to buy stuff. That's the ultimate end of the mall. (laughs) And in the same way, a lot of us have a similar view to the church. We come here to get stuff. We think that if we come here, we're going to get blessed. We're going to receive grace that's going to promote us in our uh, status at home or at work or in our school. We, We think that if we just come to this place and get what we need, then we'll be good to go. And our stance towards the church is consumeristic. And that's not a biblical view of the church. A biblical view of the church is that you and I come not to consume, but to sacrifice, to worship, to give, to give for the sake of others. Now, in those in that obedience to give, whether it's I'm giving worship to the Lord or I'm uh, following after him by giving of my, my money and my, my resources, I'm giving of my time, I'm serving other people. In the self-emptying of ourselves in the context of a local church, the Lord is going to grow you into Christ-likeness because Jesus' whole life was one of giving. But we commit ourselves by pe- being the people of God to holiness because we want to be holy. <laughs> and that sounds like a kindergarten answer, but don't miss it. Like we, we think holiness is important and not only holiness, but reconciliation. That when holiness is threatened, when relationships are broken, that our default stance is not going to be to run away from those problems, but to run towards them to maintain the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace. So we'll fly through this. Jesus gives the disciples a masterclass on how to approach conflict. All of you are going to have conflict. You're going to be in conflict with somebody or some group, probably even here. And so how do you approach that conflict? How do you approach that problem? If it's going to exist, it is going to happen. And the answer to our conflict can't be leave. Or else there would be no church that still exists. Right? If, if every time conflict crept up between believers, people just left, well, then there, no church would last, it, would last past a couple of months. 
But because there's this commitment to holiness, both for myself and for you, and this commitment to reconciliation when things go wrong, we need a plan in place. And Jesus gives us that plan. He gives us these principles. So if your brother or sister sins against you, you begin a process of reconciliation and restoration. Now, these steps are not immediate. Like you do step one on Monday and then step two on Tuesday, step three on Wednesday, step four on Thursday, and then they're out of the church. That's not how it works. Nor are they necessarily one meeting steps. So we're going to talk about these steps, and you might think, well, I've already done this, so I guess the next step is this. Well, maybe, but maybe you give it some time and you try again. So let's see. First, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I think if we believed this step, it would squash the vast majority of the conflicts that we find ourselves in. If we would believe this step, then it would, it would be, the conflicts that you're in would be unable to, to metastasize and to, to become swollen and infected and to cause more damage and heartache in other places. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Make your complaint known in humility. We don't, we don't deny what we've already learned this morning. We, we don't stop being humble. We don't stop being compassionate. A believer also walking in humility should recognize their ability to sin and fall short. And hopefully a sincere apology is offered. So you go and have a complaint. Maybe somebody just said a cutting word to you and it's not the first time. And so you believe 1 Corinthians 13, that love keeps no record of wrongs and it believes the best about other people and you are trying to be gracious and compassionate, but it seems as though this is a pattern that's developing. And so you in great humility and grace go and confront your brother or sister and say, hey, I don't know if you intended this, but this is how I felt and it really wounded me. And, and whether you, whether you I, don't, I don't know your heart, but I, I don't know how else to understand it except that, that there's something wrong here. Now, one of two things, one of three things could happen. A, they could say, brother, I had no idea. I did not intend that at all. I'm so sorry. I never, my, my intention is never to bring you grief or to wound you. But I know that because I'm a, a sinful human, that I'm, I'm liable to say things that I shouldn't have said or to say things in a way I didn't intend. And so, brother, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me for that? And then you have the opportunity to say, yes, of course I forgive you. I'm the same way. I say things I don't mean all the time too. And then it's over. Like it is done. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Option two, that person can say, yeah, I did, I did say that to you. And I was really hurt because you said this to me or you did this to me two weeks before. And I'd been thinking about it ever since. And so I was really reacting to something that you had done. And so I'm sorry that I didn't come and talk to you about it before it got to that point. But I don't want to continue living this way with you, brother. Will you, will you forgive me? And then you have the opportunity to say, brother, I totally forgive you. And brother, I'm sorry. 
that I said those, those things to you, or I did those things to you. I didn't intend for that to be what happened, but here we are. And, and I just want, I want to make things right. I want to, I want to follow after Jesus with you. I want to show grace to you as, as you've shown grace to me. Will you, will you forgive me? How beautiful is this? And how, how foreign is this to the rest of the world? And yet this, this, has the chance, this has the opportunity, like we have the opportunity for this to be just the air that we breathe. Like how healing is it to hear someone say, brother, I forgive you. Like what's done is done. Like we have the opportunity to, to extend that and to receive that, like inhaling and exhaling all the time because God's people are a people of holiness and they're a people of reconciliation. And so I'm hammering this first step because I really believe what I said earlier. Like if, if you're walking with Jesus and your brother or sister is walking with Jesus and a conflict arises, the vast majority of the time, it's going to get handled right here. And so this is vital because often what happens is we skip this, right? Somebody sins against you. And the first thing you do is what? You go tell somebody else who isn't even in the situation. And you say, I can't believe what he just did. I can't believe what she said to me. And you've taken this opportunity to squash real conflict that is bound to come up and you've allowed it to fester and extend. And now that brother or sister who wasn't even in this situation has a different perspective on this other person because all they know is what you've told them. That is exceedingly unhelpful. The third way that this could go down is you approach your brother or your sister and they don't listen to you. And they say, I don't know what, what, what you're talking about. Whatever it is that you're talking, this is not a big deal. You should get over this. And there is, a, there is an insistence that I am not going to budge here. I don't think what I did was wrong. I don't think that I did was sinful at all. I don't think I need to apologize to you about anything. And they very well may say, because the reason I did what I did is because what you did here, 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 and here. And if that's the case, we go to the second step. By God's grace, the vast majority of the time, I am convinced that if we would just walk in holiness together, that sin would be covered and absorbed by the power of forgiveness that God has given to each one of us by forgiving us. But if they do not listen, if their sinful actions and stance towards you continues, Jesus says, you don't need to stay alone. Take a few others who understand the situation and try again to show your brother or sister their error. Not to shame them. Not to condemn them. Right? We're not a people of condemnation. We're not a people of shaming. We're people of reconciliation. And so the whole premise behind why we practice church discipline, why informally, whether it's just brothers and sisters talking to one another or small groups getting together to try to hammer things out, or more formally, when it gets brought to the church for formal action or recognition of the problem, is because we love God and we love holiness and we want things to be right between one another. It's not to shame them. It's not to condemn them. It's to love them into restoration with God 
and with their faith family. And if that's not successful, if they don't listen there, then the church body comes into play. That's what Jesus says. Tell it to the church. The one who has sinned is obstinate in their guilt, and now the church needs to be made aware of it. Why? Again, it's not to shame the one who has sinned, but to love them into repentance and restoration. It may mean that the church recognizes that the member is no longer in a good standing with its members and therefore may not be able to serve as they once did. But the goal here is for the Spirit to use the people of God to bring about life in a situation that's broken by sin. And finally, if one who sinned does not repent, does not change, does not submit to the loving correction of the church body, then Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you remove that person from the membership of the body because the church can no longer vouch with confidence that the person is a believer. Now, I'm not saying that we can with total certainty look at a person's actions and make a judgment on their standing before God. We're not saved by works, right? We're saved by grace through faith. But in the context of a local church, students, this is, I really hope you take this with you for the rest of your life. A pattern of inability to repent for sin is a glaring warning sign in your life. If you are allergic to owning your faults and humbly asking for forgiveness, then there is a real concern, a real concern that, that this, this gospel thing that you say that you believe is not really something that you have put in your heart, but is something that you just use for your own purposes. And that's heavy. And that's really intense. And that's rare. But if the church body recognizes sin... And, those who, and the one who sinned is unwilling to repent, and the Christian life is vitally marked by repentance, then the option is clear. The church can say, I, I can't any longer say when I look at you with confidence that you are walking in faith because you're unwilling to own your sin and repent. Again, the goal of removing the person from membership, which is called excommunication, is restorative. The goal of this is that they would repent and then be recovered into the communion and fellowship. And just like we learned in the parable of the lost sheep, the whole church would rejoice with them that God has done a work in their life to show once again, yes, he or she is mine. And they've wandered away. Yes, but they have been found and they're back. Again, how beautiful is this? Like what a wonderful picture of God's grace in our lives that though we wander off aimlessly all the time, he is always pursuing us. And the means by which he pursues us in regular, ordinary life is through his body. Which leads us to the last, last point. Let's read verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, probably a question that all of us might be thinking about if we would think about what we just learned for a while and what the implication is for our own life. 
Peter asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77. Or 70 times seven, depending on your translation. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Small aside, this is an impossible debt. Like we can talk about what that actually monetarily would have meant in the first century, 10,000 talents. But just think 10,000, that's 10 times three times four. Like it's, it's 10, which is a number of completion again and again and again and again. It is an impossible debt. The issue is not that we need to squibble about the number. The issue is that we need to recognize this man will never be able to pay this back ever. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Then out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. It's gone. No more debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Not an insignificant number, but a, a realistic debt that someone might owe someone else. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Believers live, number three, with hearts of forgiveness. Hearts of forgiveness. We've seen that we're to live in humility, compassion, holiness, restoration. And here, Peter, just you can trust him to say what everybody's thinking. Jesus, how, how long do we have to keep that up? Because I know some folks back home in Capernaum, right? I, I know some folks who, who say they love you and they follow you, but man, they just, they've fallen short all the time. How long do I have to keep up with that? Seven times? And Jesus is like, you ain't even close. <laughs> Peter seems to think, and we do too, if we're honest, that there's an expiration date to our willingness to restore fellowship to somebody else. We, we seem to think that we can go this far and no further, and we just need to be done with this person. As if that's in the Bible, like anywhere. Now there is, there is something about doing, going away from a person who's divisive, right? 
The pastoral epistles talk about people who are divisive in the context of a local church, warn them once, then another time, and then have nothing to do with them. But that's in the context of church discipline, right? Because a factious, divisive spirit is just as much of a warning as an unrepentant heart. But in the case of somebody who is falling short, sinning, causing some disruption and destruction and, and, and heartache, and then recognizes their sin and repents, there is no expiration date on our willingness to forgive that person because there is no expiration date on God's willingness to forgive us. No, Jesus says. You forgive him continually. Our lives as believers are marked by a willingness to forgive those who sin against us. In short, we forgive much because we've been forgiven much. That's this whole story of the the unforgiving servant, right? Repentance is always met in the body of Christ with forgiveness from God. And so repentance should always be met with forgiveness from the people of God. Just like repentance, forgiveness is a vital mark of the believer. That's the whole reason Jesus gives this parable. The man who was unforgiving to the one who owed little showed that he did not really know the one who forgave him much. And so his end was not to enjoy the forgiveness of the king who absorbed and covered his debt. His end was judgment. Now, this is not the same thing as being naive, right? This is not the same. Hear me. There's, this is not the same as being a fool. <laughs> if, if my child is clumsy and often runs into things because he's still learning how to use his body. He's like a baby horse, right? Like just, just a lot of appendages, and he's not real sure where things go yet. Like if he's clumsy, I'm not going to go, I'm just going to keep all of our glassware on the bottom shelf. No, like, because I, oh, well, he broke that one glass, but, you know, it's, it's fine, buddy. Like, I'll put, we'll just put all the glasses in front of you, and, and it'll be fine. No, like, give him the Tupperware, can't break that. I still love my son, but I'm not going to give him stuff to break. (laughs) I've forgiven him, but I'm not going to put him in situations where he's going to be liable to, to fall short again on purpose. You and I have been forgiven of our sin, and yet we continue to sin too. 10,000 talents, as we said earlier, is an impossible debt. It's in a very real way, an uncoverable debt. And yet the king released the servant from the debt. And the Lord does this too for each of us. The offer of free forgiveness comes to us because of the work that Jesus is headed to in this very gospel that we'll read about in the coming weeks. So a failure to forgive others in our life is a key indicator that we have not really apprehended the forgiveness of God that comes to us in the gospel. These things are... Tightly connected. If if I am unwilling to be someone who forgives this debt, then there's, there's a huge disconnect somewhere between my understanding that God has forgiven me of an infinite debt. If anything, God's forgiveness frees us to forgive others because his patience towards us empowers us to be patient with others. His rejoicing in us as we follow him leads us to rejoice with others as they repent and follow Christ day by day. Life together as the people of God will be messy. It will be hard. It will be full of opportunities to forgive. But it is beautiful. 
and it is glorious, and it pleases the, the Lord that we love. And so my hope and my prayer is that this morning, you have a couple of minutes to discuss this in your groups. We would just be really honest about sin and temptation in our own lives. What are we willing to, to forsake for the sake of holiness and our recognition of dependence and humility before God and before one another? And especially this idea of confrontation and forgiveness. Like I, <clears throat> this is not a, this is not a boast. I don't mean to intend to, to say it like this, but I, I, I make it my aim to live in such a way that my accounts with others are clear. Like somebody might have something against me and I'm not aware of it. And, and part of that's just my, my, <laughs> that gets easily perverted into people pleasing. So don't, don't think that this is a, only a sign of holiness. It's also a sign of immaturity. But as far as it depends on me, as far as I know, my head can hit the pillow tonight content. And I don't have to wonder, man, is she still mad at me? Man, we never talked about this. Do we need to go back and do that? And I can't believe that that person still said that thing to me. I need to go. I, you don't have to live that way. Like God has freed you up to, to be able to go in grace and humility and to be ministers of reconciliation. That doesn't mean it's always going to be perfect. It doesn't mean no one's ever going to be upset with you. It doesn't mean people aren't going to be mad at you. You can't please everyone. The Bible says, as far as it depends on you to live peaceably with all men. And that's a difficult way to live. You eat a lot of crow. <laughs> you humble yourself often and ask for forgiveness and apologize. And you may think that that's a sign of immaturity and weakness. I just think that's how disciples are supposed to live in the world. So let me pray for you. And my hope is that you would catch the vision that that is a, that is a superior way to live before God and with his people.